BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Don Was remembers the exact moment music changed him. He was 14 running errands with his mom when Joe Henderson's Mode for Joe came on the car radio. Joe's tenor sax taught Don an important lesson you'll hear about later in this episode. It also cemented his love of music, which was everywhere in Detroit in the 1960s. From Motown to the Stooges to George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. It's no surprise a city as musically diverse as Detroit turned out someone like Don was, who's worked across generations and genres for decades now. He led the avant-garde new wavy band Was Not Was, produced career-defining albums for the B-52s and Bonnie Raitt, including her biggest hit, Something to Talk About. He's also worked with Bob Dylan and is a Rolling Stones go-to producer. For the last decade, he's worked as the president of Blue Note Records reviving the same legendary jazz label that issued Mode for Joe way back in 1966. Rick Rubin caught up with Don Was to talk about his wide-ranging career and why his latest gig playing bass for the Grateful Dead's Bob Weir is the single best thing he's ever done. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Don Was. Should we start with Detroit? You're from Detroit? Yeah, sure am. Yeah, I, I was born in Detroit in 1952, which meant I was a teenager there in the 1960s, which was a, a really great time to be in Detroit. You know, uh, the Stooges played at my high school. Wow. Uh, Bob Seger played at my high school. George Clinton, and the, and they were just called uh, the Parliaments then, right? And there was a five-piece vocal group, and they, they came to lip-sync I Just Want to Testify, at uh, at my junior high school at a sock hop, 
So there, there was incredible music and there was an incredible uh, atmosphere in the city. You know, after World War II, people from all over the world started heading up there to get jobs in auto factories and they brought their cultures with them. And they all kind of, it was like going to a, you know, a, a great bazaar every day. You could hear all kinds of music and meet all kinds of people. Beautiful. There was something about coming from Detroit back then that there was no point in putting on any airs. You know, it was a very honest city because everyone's fate was tied to the success of the auto business. My, my parents were both teachers. And if auto sales were down, families would move away to find other jobs and they'd lay off teachers and they'd lay off barbers and they'd lay off waitresses. And, and so there was really no point in like leasing a Mercedes to impress people because everyone knew we were all in the same boat. And that was, that was something very special about Detroit in that era. And I think the music reflects that. If you listen to the, the people who came out of there, to, to me, the, the, godfather of Detroit music is John Lee Hooker. You know? and, and that's just brutally honest, incredibly raw stuff without affectation. Incredible. Lucky, lucky that you found yourself there. It's amazing how the universe, the universe plays a role in all of this. It's incredible. What was the world in Detroit like? Paint a picture of your childhood in Detroit. Well, I see it in black and white probably because we were watching black and white TV, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I, I don't see it bright and colorful. Uh, there was a, a grit to the place, but a, a warmth, man. The people are, are really nice, man. It, it's, it's really, it's Midwestern and it's got that Cone Brothers kind of benevolence, <laughs> but it's urban and, and sophisticated. So it, it's, it's, not, it's not a farm town. It's a pretty hip town. And uh, and the culture was great. The music was unbelievable, man. Not just in rock and roll, but you know, certainly everyone knows about the R and B that came out of there. Yeah. But like, just on a, on the Blue Note roster, for example, there's a really inordinate number of musicians from Detroit who ended up recording for Blue Note. It's an incredible jazz scene. I feel like there are other industrial places that don't have that legacy. Is what what do you think is specific? about what was going on in Detroit, particularly, that created this? I think it's the combination of, of no bullshit and having an incredible number of jobs in one period of time that, that drew people from all over the world. Mm. But it's, just, it's just some weird phenomenon. It was a booming scene, man. How long did you stay in Detroit? A long time, man. I, I was there till I was in my 30s. Wow. Uh, yes, I left in 1986. So I started making records there. I loved, I loved recording studios. Uh, David was my buddy, my, my, my partner there. He, his parents were both voiceover actors. And so they, they, I remember them taking us to a place called United Sound, which is the studio where John Lee Hooker cut Boogie Chillin' and uh, George Clinton had it locked out from the late 70s, early 80s. And it's still standing, by the way. Wow. Um, and so he, they, they took us down there maybe when we were 12 to watch him record some commercials or something and i walked into that big room and saw all the mic stands everywhere and the cables hanging and all the gear and it just looked like i wanted to spend the rest of my life in that room man so that got me going when i was in my early 20s 
there's something called the Recording Institute of America, which had started uh, like a tr almost like a trade school, six week class in recording engineering, and the, they franchised it out in Detroit. And the class itself, it wasn't looking back on it, they taught EQ wrong. They, they didn't really know how equalizers were. <laughs> so the curriculum needed work, but it got me in that room at United Sound. And then I, from there, I was able to uh, con a guy. Really, I don't know any other way to put it. Uh, a guy named Jack Tan, who owned a little eight-track studio on top of a warehouse. Uh, he needed an engineer, and I told him I was a graduate, and he <laughs> and and that I got in there, and I was able to experiment. Then later, got into a Westlake room called the uh, uh, the Sound Suite, S O U N D S U I T E, where Aretha recorded and Bob Seger made records in there. It was, it was kind of jumping, and they let me go in at midnight and just start making making any kind of records I could. At that point, were you making purely your own stuff, or we did you already start producing other people? No, though it was the was not white stuff was really the first actual record we made that that came out, and that was we were just trying to create a little little microcosm of the music we grew up with. You can hear on our first record we had Wayne Kramer from the MC Five playing mm -hmm. guitar. We, we had uh, Marcus Belgrave, great jazz trumpeter, who at the time was playing with Charles Mingus. Uh, he played trumpet on it. Uh, Larry Fratangelo from George Clinton's organization was playing percussion. And it was meant to amalgamate all those sounds and to create the, the vibe of that period in Detroit and what we grew up listening to. And I didn't know what I was doing, man. It was, we were just doing anything we could. We had no money to work with. So that, that's a really great thing. When you have no bread to work with, you have to rely on creativity. You can't just hire David Campbell to come write some strings to fill up the bridge and make it rise. You gotta like find rusty nails and grind them together and put them in pitch and a harmonizer. So it was it was a, a great period. I longed for that period in a way where we we were. Uh, it was an uphill battle. It was a twenty four track studio. There were always two tracks that weren't working. So <laughs> <they're> twenty two. <laughs> That's great. And some and somehow we came up with an album. And uh, a guy named Michael Zilka. I'm not sure if you ever ran into Michael. He owned a company called Z Records. Yeah, that had I know Z Records. And the coconuts. Yeah, yeah. So he gave us a deal. I think also who else was on the label? The Contortions, maybe. The contortions, yeah, yeah. James White and the Blacks, yeah. uh, Christina, uh, the waitresses, yeah. But Kid Creole and uh, Cody Mundy were the, the they were the, the the foundational artists of the label. I, I got an email from Michael Zilka the other day. So, <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah, no, he's he's wonderful. I stay in touch with him, and uh, he he was a Medici man. He was great. He he just encouraged us to be as different as we could be. My favorite story with him was. We were recording in Detroit. He was sending us money in little drips and drabs. And uh, he said, I, I want you to send me uh, rough mixes every night of what you're doing. I, I, these are like my babies. Well, at that time, you can just like burn files and email them. It meant, and I, and I was working all night too. So at 10 in the morning, I had to stay up, do runoffs in real time, make a cassette and go to FedEx myself and drop it off for him so he could listen to it the next day. <laughs> and it got really tiresome, you know. <laughs> so so we, we said, uh, 
I said, Let, let's put an end to this, right? So we programmed all these sequencers we had laying around with the volume down. So we couldn't hear what we were doing. We didn't know what sounds were attached or what we were putting. We just banged on them. And then I, I said to David Ross, I said, just go out there and yell something, man. And, uh, and the sax player, Dave McMurray, went out there with them and started playing. But they, were just, they weren't hearing the music. They were just playing stuff. And he yelled something about, hello, dad, I'm in jail. I was, so about two minutes long, we put it on a cassette and we brought the, we brought the sound back up. It was, it was written, recorded, and mixed simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> and we FedExed that to him. We thought that would, we figured he'd call and say, all right, you don't have to send us any more stuff every day. <laughs> did, it, did it work? <laughs> No, of course not. At <laughs> 10 in the morning, the next day I stayed up. I wanted to hear his reaction, right? And he, of course, he called up and he said, it's the most wonderful thing you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was probably right. It, it turned out it's been in like eight different movies. Wow. And, and the, someone did an animation for it that toured in animation festivals for years. And it was a, a it was a great lesson in not overthinking stuff yeah. and dropping self-consciousness and just having the confidence to go out there and, and do anything. And it's also testimony to Michael's uh, taste that he heard that and recognized the honesty of the thing. Yeah. It's amazing how these things work. What, what motivated you to move from being an artist to being a producer? I, I never saw them as disconnected. I'm old, but I'm, not old enough. I, I, I remember the Beatles using this, using the studio as a musical texture. So to me, they were all one and the same. It was just a, it was another instrument. And I still see it that way. Well, what was the first thing you produced that where you, it wasn't your group? Well, I did some odd things for Michael. I produced his wife, a singer named Christina. And, and then there were some English groups that was not was our first album. We, we we did all right over in England, and and then we started getting approached by people. But the first big artist to call me was Carly Simon. Wow! Uh, and she really like, went out on a limb. I think Frank Filippetti had had worked on some of her stuff, and she was looking for younger people to come in and infuse some new blood. And she took a real chance on me. And what was the experience like for you? Oh man, it was Carly Simon. It was, <laughs> I used to, I used to stare at the cover of playing possum, right? You know, and now here I am in her house eating dinner with her. It, it blew my mind, and she was, she was lovely. She, I, I was going through a rough period then. I was in the middle of a divorce, and she helped me get an apartment in New York. She actually went to uh, the tenants committee. And at that time, Carly Simon, she's like the queen of New York, right? So, of course, they, they wouldn't let me. I didn't even have a credit card, but she came in and vouched for me. And uh, I, I got an apartment, and uh, she was wonderful, man. I, I learned a lot from working with her, too. And were you still living? So this is when you were still living in Detroit, and then you moved to New York? I moved to New York while I was making that Carly Simon record. I uh, got a divorce and moved to New York. And then it was an adjustment. In fact, I, I don't think I ever really found my groove in, in New York. I, I was struggling. I was doing the same thing I was doing in Detroit, approaching the records the same. But they weren't getting over. We weren't getting any hits. Then I had this one experience. Man, was a, this, this was a life changer. I got hired to produce a band for Virgin Records in the UK. 
and my wife was did A and R at Virgin in the UK. That's how that's how I met her. So she was somehow involved in hooking me up with this band called the Ward Brothers, three brothers from Barnsley, which is kind of like being from Iowa. And they had a little church where they made these great four-track demos, great guitar, bass, and drums. And then a bidding war started over them. And now there's all this pressure. Now you can't go to Barnsley to make a record with these guys. we got to bring them to New York and do it right. So they'd never even been to New York. So they get plonked down in the middle and it, it didn't go well. And the A&R guy came in from England and didn't like what he heard. And he pulled the band out, man. He took them home. He didn't call me. I came to the studio the next day and they were on a plane going wow. back. I didn't hear from him for a month. It was harsh. Man. Wow. <laughs> And then they called me in a month. They said, well, we're going to do some overdubs here. You can, we're not going to pay for it, but if you, if you want, you, you can fly over on your own dime and, uh, and pay for a hotel, but you can still work on the record. And I had nothing going. So I thought, all right, I'll go. So I went over and I did overdubs with them for two weeks. And it was, okay, you're back in our good graces now. Then I didn't hear from them for a month. Then they, <laughs> then they called me and said, we're going to start mixing on this date in, in, uh, like it was a residential studio in England somewhere. Now, again, you can fly over on your own dime if you want, and you can be present if you want. So I flew over, and it was not going well. It was not the right guy to mix the song. He was a good engineer, but he wasn't the right guy. And they kept talking about the, you know, the A&R guy. I was saying, it's got to sound like Don Henley. And it sounded <laughs> nothing. There was nothing on any track that sounded like Don Henley's record. But finally, I said, all right, let me go to L.A. and uh, I'll mix with, let me mix the single with Greg Ladani, who engineered Don Henley's records and mixed them. So I fly back to New York. I'm going to pick up my wife. We're going to look at apartments in, in LA at, at, while we're there. So I, I take a taxi in. We get, we get in the cab at midnight on a Friday. I got the two, the two, two inch reels under my arm for the mix. And we get up to the ticket counter and she says, wait, wait. Where are the tapes? And I left them in the trunk of a New York taxi cab at midnight on a Friday night. And thankfully, I kept the receipt and I had the medallion number, but nothing was going to happen until uh, Monday. And Greg Ladani was waiting for me on Saturday. So I didn't know what to do, man. I, I actually I lied to people. I said I got mugged at uh, the... What's the bus terminal called there? <laughs> the transit authority. <laughs> so I got mugged at the port, port, port authority. authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I called, uh, I called Michael Brower and Media Sound, who were, they were good friends. And I, I said, I need, I need you to help me with this. And we found a, a, a reel that had everything but the drums on it. So we had that flown over. And, um, and Steve Ferroni came in. And I said, you got to, it's a band of brothers. You got to play exactly what he played. And I gave him a cassette of it and he learned the part and he overdubbed it and they all did it for free. And I was able to get on a plane Saturday night and Greg Ladani said, fine, we'll do it Sunday instead. So I, I go to uh, the complex. No, I said, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I go over there to meet Greg and he says, all right, well, have a seat in the lounge. It'll take, uh, you know, it'll, it'll take, uh, you know, eight hours or something to mix it. And I'm sitting there, I got my Walkman, and I remember Peter Gabriel's album, So, had just come out, right? And I'm playing the song, Don't Give Up, over and over, and crying. I'm just sitting there with a Walkman on, crying, uh, like, uh, I thought I bottomed out. 
And while I'm sitting in that lounge, because I was working there on Sunday instead of Saturday, when there was a different artist in the other room, Bonnie Raitt came into the lounge. And that's how I met Bonnie. Wow. And meeting, and meeting Bonnie Raitt changed my whole life. So it, it, it's a good lesson, man, and how, you know, you can, when you think everything's going wrong, maybe it's really going right. Yeah, and we that, never know. <laughs> we never know. And the breaks really never come from where you expect them to come. Yeah. It's always someone you met along the, the way to do the thing. That's the one who's going to change your life. So, so I moved out to L.A. and started recording with Bonnie Raitt. How long did you work with Bonnie? Well, we did four albums. Wow. But that album, Nick of, Nick of Time, was the first one we did. Yeah. And that that changed, you know, that won an, a Grammy for album. album. I think it won like five Grammys or something. And I really went from being a pariah to having work. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm still riding the the... <laughs> like the wind uh, from Bonnie Raitt is still <laughs> in my in my sails. You know? You've done a lot of good work in between, though. I'll say. The... Thank you. <laughs> but that, that, that was very special working with her, man. She she's just such a great artist. We'll be back with Rick Rubin and Don Was after a quick break. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash stereo right now. netsuite.com slash stereo. netsuite.com slash stereo. We're back with more from Don Was. Do you think that there's something special that happens when you work with an artist the first time that's different than when you work with them over and over again? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you do anything for the first time, you know, you have it. I, I think creating and recreating are two very different neurological processes. Yeah. Right? So the first time it's all creation because you have no routine, you have no anything. You're you're you're, you're just building a a dynamic and a method of working together. Then to go back, then especially if it's been really successful, to yeah. go back to that same method and try to do it again. Now, nah, we actually, I think the second record we made, after the one after Nick at Time, I think that's a better album. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it actually had more hits and sold more records. Yeah. And it had that song, I Can't Make You Love Me on there. Wow. But we were aware at the time that we had to overcome, that we were aware of the phenomenon, that we were going back to recreate a methodology, for, for lack of a better term, a pattern uh, that, that was set on something previous that, that had just caught some kind of crazy wind and, uh, and spread. Yeah, I think more often than not, when, when you catch that wind, the healthiest thing to do is to just start from scratch on the next one as opposed to trying to, instead of trying to part to it. <laughs> well, you can't, you know, one of the things that I've learned, I, lately I've been playing live more than Ever in my life, I've been playing with Bobby Weir. Yeah. Who you did a wonderful show. With, I got to see you play with him. Oh, you did? Where? I didn't know that. I, didn't I got to see that. you play with where, him where? in, in Kauai. Oh, right. That was a wild night. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> that was a good one, yeah. Well, playing with Bobby, first of all, you can never play the same set twice. And you can, I mean, like ever. You can never put the same list together twice. You, we have 120 songs to draw from, and we really don't repeat anything f- for four nights, but they're always put together in a different combination. And on top of that, we never, ever, ever play it the same way twice. There might, it, it's got some loose form to it, but you don't know what thing is going to get stretched out. You, I don't know what the, the drummer is going to play a different beat. So it doesn't. there's no point in playing the same thing I played last night because everything's going to be different. So the one thing I've really learned with him is that anything but trying to repeat what you did the previous night is, is probably going to get you somewhere. But you also learn not to, not to worry too much about it. Yeah. You know, just go out there and play. Yeah. It, it's a hard thing to learn. It was, it was one of the attractions of taking the gig with Bob. I was, I was interested, obviously, in playing with him and, and in playing those songs but what I was really interested in was uh, expanding fearlessness. I, I, I wanted to, self-consciousness is the enemy of really everything, right? <laughs> and I, I just wanted to get better at going out there, not knowing what I was going to do in front of 2,500 people and just start playing. And it's been, it's been great for that. But I, it, it, it obviously has implications in everything that you do in life. Yeah. And in making records, I think that's been, I don't stay up 
fretting over what's going to happen the next day. Mm -hmm. I used to get, I mean, I, I still get nervous before every session and it doesn't matter if it's Bob Dylan coming in or some 19 year old kid making a first album because you really don't know where that magic thing is going to come from. Yeah. We all know how to, we can make an okay record in our sleep, but okay is your enemy, man. Just being good is your enemy. How, how are you going to get that? How are you going to make it great? Something, you know, lightning's got to hit the room. Yeah. And it's completely out of our control. Totally out of control. Right. So that, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand why, you know, why a lot of musicians end up on heroin and stuff, you know, because having to live with that is a, is a tough thing. It's out of our control. So how do you go in and deal with that? I, I used to get really, I'd feel it in my stomach before every session. I, like, where's the magic going to come from today? I don't know. But it, it, it always comes to varying degrees. Something good always happens. So you have to, but you got to open yourself up to it. Everyone's got to be open to, to the thing. And, and you got to make sure the tape's rolling when, when, it, when it hits. Yeah. And be patient. You know, like that's another big part. It's like, just got to wait for it. To, it's like fishing, you know, you got to wait for it to. Well, that's exactly, it's very much like fishing or surfing. You know, like going out, you yeah. got to wait for the wave, but you're going to get one and it's going to yeah. be exhilarating when you catch it. Yeah. But you don't exactly know what shape it's going to be. You don't exactly know when it's going to come. Never, never. Every session is different. How do you deal with it? Sa same. It's like, uh, I'm always, I, I always have anxiety before, especially before the first session of any project, because I really, that, then I really have no idea what's going to happen. Usually after we've started there's something reveals itself as to oh, it's going to be one of these, you know, it's going to be in this ballpark. And then at least I still don't know what it's really going to be, but at least I'm calm about it because it's not just a blank page. Do you know what I'm saying? It's there's some, at least there's a frame that I can yeah. see there's where it's going to be contained. And that's helpful. Yeah, no, exactly. And it sounds like from your experience with Weir, it's almost more like a jazz approach in terms of playing free? It's totally like a jazz approach, except the, the modes and scales are a little bit different. And even then, he, he listened a lot to McCoy Tyner, love McCoy Tyner. And he'll, he'll do things, like we've, we've referenced Coltrane records as far as to, to try to shape the nature of our improvisation. And I, I had to really try to come up with a, a way to play bass. I, I'll tell you the story. Uh, I was producing John Mayer in 2011. And John got me really into the Grateful Dead again. I'd seen them play in the late 60s, but I hadn't really been like a deadhead or anything. And John was a fanatic for him. Every time we got in the car, it was the Grateful Dead channel. And he, and he could identify the, the year that the concert was, even if it wasn't on the screen. He, he really knew their plan. So I started listening again and, and started appreciating what they were doing. And then I, I, I ran, I, I'd known Bob since the early 90s, but ran into him somewhere and we started talking and he was he was looking for something new to do and how, how were they going to move forward as a, as a band and all that. They, uh, Bobby and Mickey Hart came over to my office at Blue Note in the Capitol Tower and John was working downstairs. I said, man, you better come up here. <laughs> you won't believe who's in my office. And that led to the two of us going up to Bob's studio in San Rafael, and that was how Dead & Company started. And to be honest with you, I would have liked to have been the bass player in Dead & Company. And I did play, but John 
there's about a two month lag and John stopped his album and went home and shedded Grateful Dead songs. And, and I did. So we got up there. I didn't really know the songs and uh, I made them sound when I played, it sounded like a bar band doing Grateful Dead songs, <laughs> even though it was the guys, but it worked out great with John, but I didn't know how to do what Phil did. That really baffled me. He's, I think he's a really unique musician and I don't know where he's coming from. It's a unique voice that belongs to him and I can't figure out what he's doing or imitate him. So I was, I was not the right guy for that. And, but then Bob called me about two years later. He said, let's start a trio. He said, I had a dream. We started a trio. Beautiful. Uh, and, you, and you play acoustic bass. So I started, you know, this time I thought, well, I'm really going to shed, man. I'm really going to practice these songs and I'll be ready. And I was ready, but I was, I started, I was playing a whole lot of notes. And then once we started playing together, I realized that he wanted something different. It wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't saying play like Phil. He was saying, I want to, I want you to play with what I'm singing. Play, play the, play the lyrics, play the song. Don't worry about the chords. Don't worry about a bunch of notes. I want to be able to phrase and I need you to support me. So then it became a whole different challenge. Not how do I play like Phil? It became, how do I stay the fuck out of the way of his phrasing and still be supportive? What's the, what, what are the fewest notes I can play that will still provide support, but that won't inhibit his guitar playing or his singing? And that was the, the challenge. And it is every night because it's, every night's different. He phrases something. He's phrased the song completely differently every night. He approaches it fresh. It's like, what's the next line? Where's he going to sing? Where don't you need to play? So cool. <laughs> no, but that forces, it forces uh, an interactive nature of performance and focus that if you were playing your same part every night, wouldn't be there. It's like, yeah. we, we know a lot wouldn't of, we know a lot of rock bands that essentially go on autopilot when they play live. And it yeah. sounds like this, every night you're in this moment and much more like jazz again. It's also, you know what else it's like? It's like meditation. Yeah. Because it's like we play for three hours every night. And really, if, if I take my eye off the ball, I'm going to get hit in the head. Yeah. I, the whole time I, I've got to be like inside and I come off those shows like flying. So exhilarated from it. So great. Yeah, it's really, so great. Yeah. That's the best. It's the best. It's actually the best thing I've ever been involved with in my life, playing with Bobby in this trio. Beautiful. Yeah. We'll be right back with Don Was after a break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Don Was. Let's talk about about jazz and let's talk about Blue Note. So, how did Blue Note? How did Blue Note come into your life? Blue Note. Well, in 1966, I was 14 years old, and I was riding around running errands with my mom in Detroit, and and I was being grumpy. I, you know, I, I didn't want to be with my mom. I, I wanted to be out at the mall hanging out with my friends. Right, so. I was a pain in the ass. So she left me in the car with the keys so I could play with the radio while she went in to do something. I started messing with the dial. And on weekends, the local R&B station, WCHB, would simulcast the local jazz station, uh, WCHD. And I, and I landed on the station. I didn't know anything about it, but I landed on the station. And there were, I came in just as the saxophone solo of a song that I later learned was called Mode for Joe by Joe Henderson. The saxophone solo was beginning. And I could hear like about notes and it wasn't about instruments. It was a guy talking to me and he was anguished, man. And so was I because I was stuck driving around with my mom. <laughs> so I, could, I totally related to the thing. But about 20 seconds later, the drummer, Joe Chambers, who, by the way, we just re-signed to Blue Note and he's making a, a new album for us mm-hmm. as, as we speak. Uh, Joe Chambers starts kicking in with this groove and Joe Henderson kind of falls into place and then he starts swinging and he's mollified by the groove. And the statement that came through to me from listening to that music although not necessarily in these words, was, Don, you got to groove in the face of adversity. And sure enough, man, when my mom came back to the car, I was a nice kid again. I was happy. And this music spoke to me and changed my frame of mind 180 degrees. That's 14. I didn't know what hit me. But I did know that I liked the music a lot. And so it was on, they broadcast on FM all the time. And back then, you had to go out of your way to, listen to that you had to buy a special radio wow uh, so uh so i got a, a amfm portable radio and started listening to the jazz station and i found that a lot of the music i liked was coming from this one little label out of new york called blue note records 
and I wanted to know more about them. And I started collecting the records, started looking at them. You know, there's no internet. You couldn't just look at all the covers. So my friends and I, we'd just get on buses and go record store to record store. And back in those days, every record store was, you know, it was like a mom and pop store. And the the stock reflected the taste of the owner. And so you'd find different ones in different stores. And and I I remember once calling around and finding out that there's a copy of Larry Young's album called Unity, which is Luna Classic, that there was one on the east side of Detroit. And we rode a bus for 45 minutes, didn't even buy it. We just wanted to look at it and read the liner notes. And maybe you could con the owner of the store into breaking the plastic seal and playing some of it for you. So I I, I was just enthralled not only by the music and and the, the message behind the music, but by the whole vibe of it, man. It had these great black and white photos of these musicians sitting in smoke and wearing cool clothes and I just wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be in that room and the album covers themselves are all designed by a guy named Reed Miles who really changed the language of graphic design. And you can see his influence everywhere now but those covers just made such a strong individual statement. The whole culture around Blue Note was appealing to me and I followed the company my whole life right up until 2011 when I was, again, that same record. Talk about other records leading to situations. I was producing John Mayer. We had one night off, and I read that a singer named Gregory Porter was appearing up at a club near Harlem called Smoke. So on my night off, uh, I went up there, and uh, and it was just the greatest show I'd seen in years, man. I sat through three sets, eating ribs and drinking coffee, and... The next morning, I had breakfast with a guy named Dan McCarroll. I don't know if you know Dan. He, he, he used to be a drummer, played with Sheryl Crow and Lloyd Cole. And I love Dan. And somehow, he, one of the best guys ever. Great guy. And he, he worked his way up. And it, at that moment, he was president of Capitol Records. So we were just having breakfast. We are old friends. And uh, right at the end of the breakfast, I said to Dan, I said, is, is Blue Note still part of uh, Capitol? Because if it is you should sign this guy that I saw last night. And he said, well, as it turns out, unbeknownst to me, Bruce Lundvall, who'd run the label for 30 years, was sick and he couldn't carry on. And they weren't quite sure what they were going to do to keep the ethos alive. There was some talk about just turning it into a a website that sold catalog and blue t-shirts was the plan. Dan wasn't comfortable with it. And I came in with an idea on the, the day that they were looking for an idea. Wow. And he offered me the job right there in this little diner in New York City. He said, you should sign him. <laughs> Amazing. So, so I, I never aspired to work at a record company. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I never, my, whole, my whole life was kind of devoted to avoiding having a job. If I just didn't have to, I never thought about playing or making records as being a job. As long as I didn't have to go get a job. I was okay. I was 58. I almost made it. Here's this irresistible <laughs> offer. <laughs> so I couldn't say no to that. I walked around for an hour, thought about it. And I was like, ah, what the fuck? Let's do it. And did you sign Gregory Porter? That was the first call. Yeah. First call. Amazing. Yeah. Great choice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second guy, I, I ended up on, on an airplane with a, with a lawyer named Kenny Hertz, who I've known for years. And he represented Wayne Shorter. I said, would Wayne ever want to be on Blue Note again? And that was that was the second signing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so it, it's it's really worked out. I, I, 
I love it. I love doing it. Uh, I, I love being a part of maintaining the legacy of the company and and extending it. Uh, there's nothing which I'm sure you know you've experienced time and time again. There's nothing quite like the feeling of finding a, a young artist and saying, "Come with us," and you see something build off of that, and, you, and, and you've enabled them to grow and and to have their music heard. It's it's just a it's a wonderful experience. Absolutely. Tell me, what do you know about the the beginnings of Blue Note? When was it founded? What's the story of from the beginning? Founded in 1939 by two uh, German immigrants, Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolff, who were like getting away from Hitler. And they came over here. They were totally enamored of black American music. They just started hanging out, listening to it. They were in a like a jazz club, yeah, not not a bar, but like a like chess club. <laughs> they, they joined a club and they would talk about records and all that. And then their way in was to start recording some of the musicians they loved. So the first record was released in 1939. It's uh, Meet Lux Lewis and Albert Ammons. And they just kept going. And it seemed that if there was a pattern there, it was that they signed artists who had strong fundamentals, knew the history of the music that came before them, had, had a gift, but were looking to push the the threshold of what was then contemporary music and go one step beyond do something new and reflect the times that they lived in so like jumped in 1948 they, they could have signed anybody in bebop they signed thelonious monk who was definitely left to center of course we listen to monk now he, it's it sounds He's become such a part of the vocabulary. You don't think of it as radical music, but it was totally radical when he created it. And he changed the face of composition. He changed the nature of the way people voice chords. He, I mean, he's just had such an influence on generations to come. But they took a chance on him and repeated that again five or six years later when they, they put uh, Art Blakey and Horace Silver together to form the Jazz Messengers. And it uh, and and that became the birth of hard bop, which again wow. revolutionized music. Yeah. You jumped into the 60s where I came on board as a fan and they had Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter doing all these incredible uh, modal things, but they had Ornette Coleman and uh, Eric Dolphy and Cecil Taylor. And even the, the most commercial guy on the label was probably uh, Jimmy Smith, the organ player. But what he was doing with the V3 even though you could dance to it and it had a groove, that was radical and revolutionary. No one had done that with a B3 before that. Played bass with his hand and foot in combination. Like, it's incredible what Jimmy Smith did. So that seemed to be the legacy. That's the real essence of the label. And we try to continue that today. When I, my first day on the gig, Robert Glasper came in to play rough mixes of black radio which I just remember being totally transported when I heard that because I'd never heard anyone put hip hop and jazz together the way he did on that record. People had done, you know, Roy Hargrove did incredible things, you know, 10 years earlier, but no one had done it quite like the way Robert was doing it. And I just remember being totally tripped out listening to it. And, and now it, that was, you know, that was maybe nine years ago or something like that. Incredible. Now, if you go to like a, a a student concert at any college someone's going to get up and say we'd like to do a robert glasper song now afro blue which of course is an old mongo santa maria song that, that coltrane cut but everyone knows robert's arrangement and he's now become 
a permanent part of the jazz vocabulary. So that, the, the goal is to keep doing that. Amazing. How, how often do you see someone who can fit in that lineage? Seems like they're few and far between. Yeah, they are few and far between. Not, uh, you don't see some of that often. But, you know, recently, I, I actually asked my son, my, my youngest kid, Solomon, he's a bass player, he's, 20, he's going to be 24 this year. And I said, who in your generation is like the Miles Davis? Of, you know, who, and he didn't hesitate. And he said, there's a vibes player out of Chicago named Joel Ross. So check him out. So we started watching the videos. And he was awesome, man. So I called him up. And... Uh, he'd already had an album recorded. He, you know, he was he was he's really sharp, really on the case. The more I hung with him, I realized that he was quite well known, and he's the leader among the musicians of his generation, in my opinion. I can see that when people play in his band, they play differently. They, he elevates their playing just by, by being with them. But when whenever wherever he goes to play, it changes. Which reminds me of Miles. It reminds me of Charles Lloyd. Same thing. So we signed him and he put out a record about a year ago and he's really blossoming. And now we, we just signed the guy who plays saxophone with him, Emmanuel Wilkins. That's a record coming out this year. Both Joel and Emmanuel have new records coming. So they're there. Uh, you know, people are out there. You just have to keep listening and stay open. Yeah. You know? it sounds like the same like being in the studio, just the patience, you know? <laughs> That's it. It's exactly like that. And I, I think that a lot of the things I learned in the studio and also learned as an artist who ended up being produced by other people i, I think that's been that's been really helpful I, I don't uh i don't rule with an iron fist in fact, i do the opposite I, I try to find people whose instincts i trust yeah absolutely how did your relationship with the stones begin they called me in 92 they just signed a virgin records and virgin records was trying to get them to use a producer and uh you know, I, I, was, I was on the heels of on this B-52s, Bonnie Raitt stuff, and they suggested I go meet with them. So I went to New York City. They were, it was right after Bill Wyman left the band, and they were auditioning bass, new bass players. I went to SIR. And you got to understand, I, I saw them play for the first time in 1964. Bought the first album, bought every album subsequently, went to every tour subsequently. And now here I was in a room watching them play the greatest hits, auditioning a bass player, <laughs> and, and there's nobody else in the room. I, I just couldn't believe it. So then, so then the, Mick and Keith come over, and they sit down next to me. I hadn't met Keith before, but I, I, I'd met Mick before, and they both started talking at the same time. <laughs> and for, and it was like like watching a tennis match you know my head's going back and forth which guy do i listen to and they did not yield to the other guy for it felt like an eternity yeah. but it was probably a good three minutes right yeah probably yet probably still to this day <laughs> it, it, things haven't changed that much <laughs> but keith was basically giving me uh, you know all the reasons that they didn't need a producer I don't need some fucking guy to tell me how to play guitar. And, and Mick wanted the producer, but he, he had, he had his reasons. So they were both talking at the same time. And then they both stopped at the same time. And Keith said, you sure you want to be the meat in this sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Oh man, they're never going to hire me, but I got a great story to tell my grandchildren. So I split that day thinking I, I was never going to see him again. And then, and then Keith called me a couple of weeks later and we figured out what they did need and what they don't need. He doesn't need someone to tell him how to play guitar. Uh, so 
I don't have to do that. But there are, there are other things where having an objective third party helps. Cool. So it's been really nice. It's been, it's, that was 1993. So it's 27 years. Incredible. And, and they've been good friends, like really good friends and really generous guys. And they are the best rock and roll band ever, I think, you know, and I just, every time we go in to make a record and I get to sit in, in that little circle with them playing live, I, I can't believe how good they are. And I've gotten to play with them too, which is nice. There, there have been times that Daryl Jones hasn't been able to be at a rehearsal or a session or something. When, when, you, when you play bass with them, you, you become aware that the conversation, the musical conversation that's going on, there's zero tension in it. It's quite jocular. They're having so much fun. And it's kind of like, you, you know, when, when you go to a baseball game, before the inning starts, there'll be several balls out in the field and they're, they're just tossing it around, warming up before the inning starts. Huh? So that's kind of like what they do to each other. They, they throw each other these really nice softballs, these beautiful pitches that just land right in the glove. And that they're just flying around and Charlie will play something that makes Keith play something that'll make Nick play some, sing something that'll make Ronnie play something. And they're so quick and there's so much listening and it's so improvised and it's so much fun, man. They're ha they have a ball when they play. It's great. Tell me about, tell me about the show in 1964. What was it like seeing them back then? I didn't know anything about it, man. No one knew who they were in 1960. It was like February 1964, March or something like that. And the Beatles had just been on Ed Sullivan. So everyone was totally into this whole notion of English groups coming over. And here's some another Beatles kind of group. And they played the Olympia Stadium in Detroit, which is a hockey arena. And there were maybe 300 people in a place that held 18,000. Wow. But a couple, uh, a couple of weeks later... They were, uh, you know, they were on Ed Sullivan, and then they were huge. How, how would you say your relationship to music has changed from the time you were a kid, from the time that you were in your mom's car and you heard that saxophone? Yeah. How has your relationship to music changed to today? Well, there's maybe just a little bit of awareness of of the of the backbone behind what you what you see, but the. The impact is still exactly the same, but there's a lot of research about like the uh, neurological implications in music. That the part of the brain that processes music is is there originally, so you could communicate with babies. Uh, it's for pre-language communication, right? and so like a mother coos to a baby, oh, look at the baby. That's music. Those are intervals. And those intervals are repeated in disparate cultures all over the world. The same thing. It's, it soothes a baby. But once you learn to speak, you know, by the time you're three years old, maybe you close that area of the brain down. We close down 19 of 20 active synapses by the time we're 12 or something like that because we, we can't have them all open. And we keep open the synoptic pathways that we use. And we keep the music one open. Well, well, why is that? I think it's because conversational language, no matter how articulate and deep you get with it, it still fails to convey the full depth of our inner emotional lives. That's why we have art, you know, because you have to convert these emotions to another medium in order to communicate that to somebody. And great art is made by someone who who's, is willing to dig deep inside and take something even that something that makes them really uncomfortable and really you know 
tears them up and, and bring that out in some way and share that with other people so that when they receive it, it puts them in touch with their lives. So anything that brings you some understanding of what's going on inside of you, anything that even just brings you comfort for three minutes, that's, a, that's an amazing thing to, to offer to people. So I just know that even before I was making music, I was impacted by music and that it, it soothed my soul and, and made life bearable. And it's nothing has changed. <laughs> and that's it. I just have a little bit of insight into how you, you can get that from the artist to the listener. It's still all magic and all it's a big fucking mystery. Yeah, we're so lucky that we get to feel that on a regular basis. I, I feel super fortunate. I really do. Cool, man. It's a great way to spend your life. You can hear all of our favorite Don Was related tracks on a playlist we created for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel where you can find all of our past episodes and also some great bonus material. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, Leah Rose, Eric Sandler, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music is by Kenny Beats. Thanks for listening. I'm Justin Richmond. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.